Well, that was Stephen and Cindy Martins, and they are North American Mission Board missionaries in the Niagara area of Ontario. And they are ministering in a community population of 400,000, but of those, 80 to 90 percent say they don't not only have a relationship with God, but they don't believe in God. So they're ministering in a very difficult field, and they're doing quite well. God's using them in a great way, and they're trying to establish a brand new community of faith there called the Seville Chapel. So what I'd like to do now is lead us in prayer. They gave us some specific prayer needs that we can pray for them about this morning. And by the way, I encourage you to grab one of these. Um, it has several different um, uh, prayer stories um, that where you can be praying for these missionaries about. Um, all of these missionaries work with the um, the North American Mission Board and serve um, somewhere here in, in North America or in Puerto Rico. And uh, we're, we're focusing on them and praying for them during this season because we take up an offering called the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering, 100% of which goes to support missionaries just like them. So let's go um, to the Lord in prayer and pray for the Martins. So first, pray um, for them and the connections that they're seeking to make um, in a challenging com community. Um, pray that they would continue to make disciples and God would open the door for that for them. Now pray for Stephen and Cindy to have favor specifically as they knock on doors uh, to share the gospel. Pray that people would be open to hear what they have to say. Lord, thank you for Stephen and Cindy and their willingness to go as you have sent them and to take up the call that you have given them in their life. And I pray, Lord, that you would help their church, the Seville Chapel, to be a great light in this community. I pray that you would help them to form relationships with people that don't yet have a relationship with you. Uh, I pray that you would give them boldness. I pray that you would give them daily encouragement as, as they are working in a really difficult um, mission field. And I, I just pray that you would give them great effectiveness. Thank you for the, the gospel. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And I pray that now as we open up the word of God to hear it preached, I pray, Lord, that you would give me the words that I need uh, to preach the message. And I pray that you would make our hearts soft to the message. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Paul Miller.
in his book called The J-Curve, retells the story of Michael Richards. Some of you probably are aware Michael Richards was an actor and a stand-up comedian who played the character Cosmo Kramer in the really famous and popular sitcom called Seinfeld throughout the 90s. Well, things didn't end well for Michael Richard. Um, in, in the early 2000s, he was doing a stand-up comedy show at a place called the Laugh Factory in Hollywood. November 17, 2016, when there was some heckling going on um, among the crowd, and he did not respond well. He responded with an explosive, what can only be called an explosive, lengthy, racist rant. The confrontation quickly went viral on the internet and on into the, uh, the media. Uh, three days later, Richard appeared on the late night show with David Letterman alongside guest Jerry Seinfeld, his friend. And he made a, an apology saying, for me to be at a comedy club and to flip out and say this stuff, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply sorry. I'm not a racist. That's what's so insane about this. His apology was not received well. And there was even some awkwardness among the audience. Some audience, audience members started to laugh at his apology as he sort of went into part of his routine. And Seinfeld kind of had to tell them, no, don't, don't laugh. Um, he's trying to be serious um, about this. But from the fallout of all this, basically... He was forced to retire both from acting and from stand-up comedy. Uh, and then Seinfeld repeatedly over the years tried to help his friend rehabilitate his public persona. Um, in 2012, he had Michael Richards on a new show of his called Comedy Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. This is an internet streaming show. Um, and during the show... It's clear that Richards still was carrying this tremendous weight over what he had done, about the guilt that he had. And, and Seinfeld encouraged his friend, and he says, it's up to you. Um, it, it's up to you to say, I've been carrying this bag around for too long, and it's time to put it down. And Richards didn't say much to Seinfeld, only just muttering, yeah, yeah. Well, Michael Richards isn't the only one who carries around the weight of guilt, nor has a problem with guilt. What is guilt? Well, guilt is that punishment that we sense and we all deserve because of the wrongs that we have committed. The Bible sums up guilt for the wages of sin is death. So what we deserve for the wrongs that we have committed is death. So today we're going to see how there is a solution for the guilt that we have. 
And that solution can only be found in Jesus Christ. It's only through him that we can truly put down the weight of guilt. And to do that, we're going to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 18. You may have seen in the bulletin that we're going to take a break during this Easter season from our prior sermon series called Genesis Beginnings. We'll, we'll pick that back up later in the spring. But toward Easter, we're going to do a series called The Passion. And The Passion is just a traditional way of summing up those events of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion and the crucifixion itself when he suffered and died. And today we're going to look at when Jesus was betrayed. This is John chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. John 18, 1 to 11. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. When Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen, went out and said to them, Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who, was, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you that I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then at that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup my father has given me? This is God's holy word. Jesus had been praying practically all night. The evening earlier, he had gathered his closest friends and followers, the original disciples, for the Passover meal. It was a very intimate time between them and he, him sharing about what was to come. And they were still a little bit unclear about everything, but it was soon to come into focus. So they had left there, and Jesus took them, um, except for Judas, who had already determined to betray him. He had already left. He took his disciples to a garden area on a slope off the side of the Mount of Olives, right across a valley called Kidron from the, the temple. So you have the Mount of Olives on one side and across a valley called Kidron, you have the Temple Mount itself. And when Jesus finished praying, a huge 
group of armed men had amassed to come and arrest Jesus. They were led by this disciple, Judas, who was betraying Jesus. He had left the Passover meal earlier. And we aren't told the reason why in the Gospels he had put in his heart to betray Jesus. We just know that he had already conspired with some of the religious leaders uh, from the temple to have Jesus arrested and killed. So imagine what's going on. You have all of these temple guards and then a company of Roman soldiers. And from what I read, the word that is used here in John's gospel for the company gives an indication that this would have been several hundred soldiers in the neighborhood of around 300 soldiers. And on top of this, Jewish temple guards coming out to arrest one man, Jesus Christ. And they were well-armed. They were carrying wet, they were carrying lanterns and torches here um, in the night. And they were looking to intimidate, except Jesus wasn't intimidated. We're told in verse 4, he already knew what was going to take place. He had already determined to do God's will, no matter what the cost was. So he just went out to them. He stepped out of the grove of olive trees and the, 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 the garden there, and he went right out to them to speak to them unafraid. And he steps out front, and there was Jesus standing before him were probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 to 400 well-armed, trained men staring at him, looking to arrest him. And Jesus speaks up first, who is it that you're seeking? And there were the disciples standing behind him, the 11 that were, that were left, just trembling there in fear, I'm sure. Jesus of Nazareth, they answered, I am he. Jesus told them. And as soon as Jesus said, I am he, we're told that they step back and fall down on the ground. This one man, I am he, then hundreds of people falling down on the ground. Imagine that, just falling down like dominoes at those words, I am. What's going on? I am is the name God gave to Moses at the burning bush. Moses wondered, how can I identify you if the Israelites ask me, what is your name? And God told Moses to say, I am who I am. And now Jesus standing before the hundreds of men who had come to arrest him, to take him to his certain death. Speaks those words, same words, I am. Identifying himself as the same God who spoke from the bush to Moses. The great I am. And at those words, somehow an invisible power forces all of these men to the ground. At the name of Jesus. At the name of the great I am. 
But Jesus isn't here to win a battle. He's not here to escape. He's not there to fight these men. He's there to surrender. He knew that it was his time. It was his time to go to the cross. He makes sure his disciples are kept safe. He points to them, I, I told you that I'm he, so if you're looking for me, let these men go. But before leaving, Peter impulsively grabs his sword and clumsily swings his sword at one of the temple guards. His name was Malchus. He, he cuts off his right ear. In Luke's gospel, we're told that Jesus miraculously quickly heals this man's ear. And then he speaks up, he, he rebukes Peter. Put away that sword. His kingdom is not of this world. He wasn't there to lead in military conquest. He was there to suffer and to die. And, and Peter apparently just did not get that. And he goes on and he says something really important that signals and shows us the solution to the problem of guilt that we all have. He told Peter, put away your sword. And then he says and asks the question, am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup the Father has given me. The cup that Jesus speaks of isn't a cool, refreshing drink of water. Now, the cup that Jesus speaks of is the bitter wrath of God that God has been preparing for his enemies, for all of their sin and all of their wrongdoing. Throughout the Old Testament, God had promised justice to be poured out against wrongdoers. He told of a cup that he was preparing, that he was going to make them drink out of. Psalm 75 verse 8 specifically prophesies about this cup that God is going to make every unrepentant sinner on the face of the earth drink from for the punishment of their sins. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine blended with spices and he pours from it all the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to its dregs. So to be clear, this cup is a symbol of the punishment that we all deserve for our sin. It is a symbol of our guilt that we can't seem to get rid of because we're deserving. We are sinners. We're deserving because we have broken the laws of God. We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve eternal life. In other words, we deserve hell, the, the cup of wrath, to paraphrase. And what's so amazing is Jesus is saying that this cup, this same cup that is spoken of in Psalm 75, that all the wicked of the earth will drink, drain it to his dregs, has now been prepared for him, has now been given to him by the Father. 
Listen to God's unbelievable plan. That he sent Jesus, his one and only begotten son, his dear son, to earth. This is why Jesus came, to drink the cup of the wrath of God for us. And Jesus willingly came. He said, no one is going to take my life from me. I lay it down. He willingly came to earth to drink the cup. Jesus, the pure, the sinless, the righteous, the holy Son of God, accepted the cup to drink in our place, the punishment for all of our sins. He did this for you. He did this for me. He did this for the whole world because he loves us. And then he arose victoriously from the grave to prove that God had accepted his sacrifice in our place. Going back to the problem that we all have with guilt, that guilt that we all feel and sense, that guilt that we all carry around, that we can't seem to find a solution to, what do we do with our regrets? What do we do with our failures, our secrets, and our most horrendous wrongs that we don't even like to think of? How can we stop carrying them around? Well, first, I'll tell you what doesn't work and what many try. It doesn't work to ignore it, act like we don't have a problem with guilt. It doesn't work to medicate it, whether that be with drugs or alcohol or pleasure. It doesn't work to punish ourselves to try to release it somehow, nor minimalize it or justify it away as if our wrongs really aren't that bad, nor trying to make up for it by becoming a better person. And that's a very popular way to handle it. You know, I love the movie Saving Private Ryan. I'm sure many of you really like that movie as well. I love that movie right up until the very last scene in the movie. Saving Private Ryan, it's a World War II movie. It's about James Francis Ryan, who was the last remaining son in his family. A squad of soldiers is ordered to go into France to get him and to evacuate him. So his mother would not lose her last son. And they're successful. They, they get and they find um, Private Ryan. There's a squad of soldiers led by Captain Miller, who, who's played by, by Tom Hanks. Matt Damon plays Private Ryan. And then it fast forwards at the end of the movie where Private Ryan is now an older man and he's standing before the grave of, of Captain Miller. And he, he's speaking to Captain Miller and he's, he's weeping over this man's grave and he doesn't know how to express his gratitude. 
All he can say is that I hope I'm a good man. His wife is there who's now older. He has grandchildren and children with him. And he looks over to his wife, tell me that I'm a good man. Tell me that I've earned this salvation, so to speak, that was provided for me. Say to me that I I prove myself worthy. From that, it's clear that Private Ryan is still, like many people today, still drinking from their own guilt. They're trying their hardest to work it off, to do their best to be a good person, to numb themselves to the effect of it, but they just can't seem to put it down and get rid of it. They're like Michael Richards when prompted by Jerry Seinfeld, just saying, yeah, yeah, because they can't let it go what they've done. They're still living in it, still trying to find their own way of of salvation. But the good news is that's not how God's plan works. You see, the only way that we can find freedom from our guilt that we all rightly deserve is through trusting in the one who drank the cup for us. The one who was completely innocent but bore our guilt on an old, cruel cross. Jesus Christ. That's the only way that our guilt can be removed and our sins can be forgiven. Have you ever trusted in Jesus Christ like that? Who drank the cup of your guilt for you. Who came to earth for that purpose to lay his life down for you. Have you ever personally committed your life to him? Not just knowing about him as a historical figure, not just knowing about the cross, as an event that we celebrate every year around Easter time, but knowing Jesus Christ, letting him take your guilt away, receiving the forgiveness of sins that he alone can provide. Well, if not, I've got good news. You can do that right here today. You can admit that you are a sinner that you cannot save yourself, that you are worthy of guilt and condemnation. You can believe in Jesus and what he has done for you in his death, burial, and resurrection. You can trust him, and then you can ask him to come into your life and to be your Lord and to be your Savior. And if you're willing to do that, then that weight of sin and guilt can be taken off of your shoulders. It can be laid on Jesus.
And you don't ever have to pick it up again. You can be, from then on, living in the assurance that I am a child of God. Forgiven and accepted. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh, Father God, thank you so much for the the salvation that only you can provide. Thank you for sending your son to die for us in our place, to do what we deserved, to die as a sinner, to be punished for our sins. Thank you for sending Jesus to die as a sacrifice in our place. Now I I pray, Lord, that if there are any here who have yet to receive him, have yet to become a child of God, I pray, Lord, that you would open up their eyes spiritually to be able to see. I pray that, Lord, that they would yield to him, that they would confess their sins and believe in him as their Savior. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.